0: Welcome back to Speaking to Stacey, a podcast sharing practical advice for an action driven lifestyle. My name is Stacey Liddell, and I'm really excited to be able to share this conversation with you today. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say a big thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in and learn something new. This week, my guest is CJ Devette. CJ holds a master's in strength and conditioning and worked for Major League Rugby side, the Austin Elite, as a technical analyst and assistant coach stay with us to the end to find out some of the key ingredients that are essential to success in professional sport i think this episode will benefit prospective sports people by giving them insights into the nuances of life as a professional athlete i believe this conversation holds many benefits for you three key highlights are number one why you shouldn't allow your sport to define you and become your identity number two some of the harsh realities of having a career in sports. And number three, the importance of buy-in and how it leads to success. So without further ado, let's get into the show. So we're live here and I've got my mate, Christian Devet. Christian, is it cool if I call you Christian? CJ fricky. What what are you going? CJ about? CJ <laughs> is fine. Yeah, I have got too many,
1: too many names. You can use your Hannes here too as well. So Man, wow. well, yeah, no, it's all good. CJ's good.
0: Okay, so as usual, CJ, could you just give a brief introduction or a lengthy introduction, whatever <laughs> whatever suits you, into sort of who you are, your background, and maybe some of the reasons why I asked you to come on the show. And then we can just dive into different questions and topics from there.
1: Sure. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, Well, basically, yeah, I came came from a background of um, I studied strength and conditioning uh, both in uh, Stellenbosch and then over here in Massachusetts uh, in the US, Um, and then kind of after that, ended up delving into uh, pro or semi-pro rugby, and then eventually professional rugby with Major League Rugby here in the US. Um, And you know, that's kind of kind of my sporting uh, background. But I've basically been involved in sport ever since I was a kid, Um, and then obviously growing up and studying you know exercise science and everything else i just always wanted to be involved in sports Um, the professional sports thing wasn't actually where i thought i would end up uh, as quickly as i did Uh, probably thought it would have taken a bit longer but i was just lucky and very fortunate to be at the right place at the right time and have a good connection over here Um, and was lucky enough to be brought over to for the austin franchise Um, outside of that right now i'm no longer in professional sports just to kind of tie this whole bio up real quick no longer in pro sports Uh, but now working as like a freelance product designer or a UX designer, uh, if people understand that, hopefully they do understand technology in some way. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing now. Um, and we can get into why I kind of moved away from pro sport, but, uh, yeah, no longer pro sport. And now lastly, um, yeah, about to become a dad with my wife. So super excited about that. Um, and yeah, that's me in a nutshell, you know, so I don't want to go. Yeah. I guess we could talk about some of the details as we go. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Okay, awesome. I was uh, people couldn't see what I was doing there when uh, Christian said that he was in a nutshell I was doing what Austin Powers did in the movie where he's like, in a, <laughs> "I'm in a nutshell, I'm in a giant nutshell, <laughs> uh, nutshell of emotion." I think it was, yeah, pretty um, much. Th- okay, cool, man. That's that's really awesome um, because I think you're quite unique in the guests that I've had on because you've done both the. Um, The sports side, the pro sports side, and you've done the university side. You've actually studied sport and uh, sport uh, exercise, science, exercise science. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And um, so I want to know from you let's go back a little bit to your beginnings of sport. Like what inspired you to get into sport? Was there a significant somebody or a moment that comes to mind? Or was it like the typical (laughs) South African? Yeah, I was about to say yeah you know like i mean it's so funny every every south african i've spoken to so far is like yeah i played rugby cricket hockey water polo <laughs> like, geez, like it's it's such a south african thing that that like kids just all seem to have played a thousand sports growing up
1: yeah it's deeply i feel like it's just super deeply ingrained in who we are and you know all of kind of what all our passions really are um for me i was i wasn't blessed with uh with God's genetics to be a, a Springbok rugby player, like most uh, guys want to grow up to be. So I knew my only avenue to, to either get into pro sports or be involved in sports would have to be giving back in some way or working in a different capacity. So for me, that was kind of uh, what exercise was supposed to be looking back now in hindsight, I probably would have tried to go into sports management actually, because it's, it's probably where I, I kind of feel like my, my would be best suited to my skill set uh, now. Um, but hindsight's always 2020, right? It's easy to look back and say that, but, um yeah, I mean, that's it was the same as most South Africans, just really wanted to be involved in sport, knew I didn't have the genetics to compete at a high level, Um, and knew that the only way that I was going to be able to do it was to, you know, obviously study it, learn it, and try and get in that way.
0: Okay, cool. Um, That's very really interesting because I also, I know exactly where you're coming from with the whole genetics thing. Like, I, as you know, definitely <laughs> was not less to the genetics. Um, <sighs> and where I ran into even, like, bigger, bigger, walls sort of to success is in bodybuilding. Like I did a couple of amateur shows, mm-hmm. um, but more sort of the physique side, so the smaller side of things. And I very quickly realized like genetics and structure in bodybuilding are so important that there's like a, there's a literal hard ceiling for most mm-hmm. people. If you don't have the structure, you just simply are, you can maybe do well in local shows, but as soon as you get to like a regional level, just some guy with like freak genetics who does basically half of what you do, it's still going to blow you out the water because at that level, it's just, you cannot overcome genetics.
1: No, no. And I mean, I, like obviously Stellenbosch is, Stellenbosch is a, a, you get humbled real quick. When you, when you study at Stellenbosch you play rugby in Stellenbosch, um, there's nowhere to hide. And uh, I mean, there's just so many good quality players that come through there uh, so unfortunately for me, you know, just playing corsairs League, uh, I saw some guys around me getting picked to go up to, to obviously play for the stellies, the different Martis teams as they kind of moved through the age divisions. Um, but I mean, I just, I wasn't even on the radar of the selectors and it was, uh, it was initially frustrating, but it was kind of like, I knew this was going to happen. So there was no use in kind of getting worked up or upset about it and just carried on, you know, focusing on my studies and leaning into exercise science even harder. So. Um, you know it was it was just one of, it's just one of those things you just you realize it's just not going to be for you and there's nothing wrong with that you know
0: um that brings to mind a question that I hadn't really thought about but um going from an environment like school where you know people and coaches and the staff know who you are so you kind of you in a you're in a small small pool i guess like a big mm-hmm. fish in a, in a small pond kind of thing and so like you get to play first side and you get to have those opportunities. And then when you go to a place like Stellenbosch and you just dropped into an ocean of players like that, like was it demoralizing or as you said, did you come to terms with it quite quickly and was it easy to get over or did you battle that for a while?
1: No, I I mean, I didn't. So I, I obviously I had, I had my big ACL injury in my first year in Stellenbosch. So my, my goal was to try and make the Marties kind of youth side, right? The under-21 side that they had. And I, I felt like I, I could do it if I was healthy and I was in good shape. And I was probably uh, size-wise the biggest I'd ever been, the most powerful I'd ever been. Um, but unfortunately, just I had my, my ACL tear playing touch rugby. I mean, so many people could probably say the same thing. I was playing touch rugby one day and just stood in a hole and my knee literally just bent the wrong way, twisted, tore everything, tore MCL, LCL meniscus i did it all so it was it was really really bad um and that kind of was when i don't want to say i accepted it or i had to come to terms with it it was just like you know i did that i i wasn't sure i would be able to recover to the point where i'd be competitive again and losing like because the the quality of rugby is so high at marty's like losing a whole year of that playing and competing and skill um you just you can't really it's going to be very difficult unless you're exceptional to come back from that um, and I did come back and I did end up, you know, playing first side in Corsese, um which was great fun. And I, I loved that it. it was some of the best rugby and some of the most fun rugby I've ever played. Um, it's just, I just knew I was never going to be there. I mean, I had guys like um, Grant, uh, I think his name was Grant Ratray, Grant who was our fullback at the time I was playing wing. And uh, he ended up kind of getting into the Marty's youth side. I think he, he made Marty's second side, but ended up getting a contract down at the Sharks. You know, so that's to tell you how competitive it is. He didn't even make Marty's first team but ended up getting a contract at the Sharks, you know? So, you know, Corsair's league is extremely competitive, especially when you're playing in the A-sides and stuff. And it was just, it was good fun. And uh, and I just kind of knew that was my level, you know, and I was okay with that. And um, yeah, just, just had fun and enjoyed it as much as I
0: could. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, it's so interesting. When I was speaking to Anton Taylor, um, he had a similar thing with knee injuries. He just said that he kind of realized, uh, I think it was... More so after his second injury he realized that like no nah, that's that's kind of it you can't you can't really i wonder if it's a mental thing because i've also had an acl injury i've had mine had to be operated on twice and i felt after the first one i was quite positive still and i went back to sports but then i injured it again the second time and after that i was like no um that's my sporting career in terms of dynamic sports like rugby or soccer or squash where you're doing a lot of twisting and turning i kind of stopped those kind of sports i can still do weightlifting and um i do a bit of road running and things like that i can even do boxing um because funny enough boxing isn't as jerky and and um lateral as a lot of Mm -hmm. other sports Mm -hmm. so it's interesting how knee injuries impact a lot of people in sport and kind of it brings you brings you back down to earth i think you realize you kind of have your limitations physically and and all those kinds of things.
1: It hurt yeah. my speed massively, you know, and as, and as someone who was a, like, a, you know, an elusive, and you know, you're also a super elusive player. Um, it's once you kind of lose that speed and that quickness off the mark, it's very hard to get it back to. So that was probably the thing that was the toughest. And then, yeah, you just got to try and become a, a smarter player really because you just don't have that, that speed and agility that you used to have. And that's okay. I mean, I've, I'm, I'm lucky I didn't have to have another operation or anything like that. My, my surgeon was fantastic. He did an amazing job. Uh, Spike Erasmus, I don't know if you know him. He does like a lot of the Springboks and the Western Province players. So I was very lucky to get him and he did an amazing job. And the only kind of issues I had post that, which is mainly due to rehab, was I had a lot of hamstring injuries, which is kind of normal. Um, from kind of an ACL injury, but uh, very frustrating. And just, you know, every time you feel like you're about to get into it again, your hamstring just goes. So it almost took me like a year and a half to actually come back from that ACL fully where I was playing consistently and not having injuries. Um, so that was a long, frustrating slog, you know, and that's a lot of time if you're an athlete to kind of lose. But
0: yeah. yeah, Especially when you're younger and you feel like you need to, you know, you need to be on the field all the time to get spotted. And as you said, you know, you lose out, on all that development um, and everyone else is kind of moving ahead of you, not only in like the pecking order, but also in terms of like physical development and oh, all yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's so interesting. It's just, it's a major, it just seems to be a major theme across a lot of people's um, sports careers, injuries. I mean, Nick Costa as well, um, who uh, was on the show as well. He just spoke about how his knee injuries are so bad that like essentially uh, he was like a walking, sort of like a walking injury. He was just constant, like wearing Purple Heart, basically. He was always injured. With w- When he went on the field, he was already injured. Um, yeah, and I mean, just that's just like injury management.
1: Yeah, it's a common story, too, across athletes. Um, we had a prop uh, playing, at, uh, obviously, for the Austin franchise here, yeah. Um who basically had a very terrible kind of neck injury and shouldn't have really been playing um but he was so determined to play he just he wouldn't give up i mean the doctors pretty much told him they're like if you have another major neck injury you know you could be you know in a wheelchair for the rest of your life um but yeah just one of those guys who just consistently always had issues with his neck and his shoulder and just refused to come off the field and refused to stop playing you know yeah,
0: the typical, sounds like a typical hard man rugby story, especially from the front row there. <laughs> they yeah, yeah, I'm just, work
1: yeah. I mean, he's just a prop and he just loved it. You know, he just, he's just, even today, he's still, he just had another operation and he's going to be playing again this year. So it's just, he just can't, yeah, he can't help himself, you know.
0: Can't get enough. All right. So um, I would love to ask you about how you got the opportunity to go over and work in the States because, um, as you said, you know, you didn't expect to achieve the things you achieved so early on in your career. Um, so what led you to get into the States? And can you give a bit of background of, of what you did there and how everything unfolded?
1: Sure. So um, while I was still studying my uh, sports science or my strength and conditioning specifically uh, in Massachusetts, I was also working with a local team, quite a quite a high up uh, rugby side, like a top 10 rugby side called AIC. And Josh Macy was the coach at the time. And I was working as his strength coach um, for, his, for his rugby side and helping them out. So I was kind of always involved in rugby. And I was also coaching my university team. Um, I was the head coach of that team. Um, managed to get us into the playoffs, which they hadn't done in many, many years. So that was really cool a lot of effort and good to see the guys develop. Um, and then coaches have come since me and also helped to propel the side forward foreign coaches. So it's been really good. Um, sorry, but to get back on track um, kind of after that time, I did another internship over here or not over here uh, in South Africa at the Western province rugby Institute in Stellenbosch. Um, and that was fantastic. I got to work with you know high quality, like high quality coaches, but also get to work with some real high quality athletes and guys who have gone on to achieve amazing things like, Now, some of the guys that we were lucky enough to work with, guys like Dave Ribbons, who just this weekend was playing for England, um, Test Match Rugby, which is amazing to see. And so so good to see a guy be that successful to come out of Western Province, uh, at least the academy or the institute. Uh, Another one is Zas. You know, Leon and Zas was a a guy we worked with um, as well and kind of also had injury issues. So it was very good to see him get past that now to be able to become a consistent player for the Stormers. And obviously now he's trying to push for a Springbok berth too. So So yeah, I I was very lucky to kind of get that um, at the Institute and kind of get connected there and get a a small taste of what rugby analytics looked like. And that's what kind of got me excited about rugby analytics too. Um, And kind of after my time there, uh, finished my degree and graduated with my master's and then was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And basically um, was lucky enough to hear that they were going to start a league here in the United States. And obviously I'm a dual citizen, I'm, I'm American and South African. So for obviously there's no kind of um, impediment or anything that's in the way of me being able to, to, uh, to kind of get a, a visa or anything like that to come and work here. Um, and my father luckily knew the, the head coach, um, and kind of contacted him and said, listen, are you, would you be interested in interviewing my son? And, and I went with the intention of kind of maybe looking at analytics and looking uh, as the strength and conditioning coach. Um, and obviously went with my CV and all my references and everything. Sat down in Stellenbosch one day and kind of had a meeting with the with the then head coach, uh, who was about to become the head coach. Uh, ex he was an ex Lions head coach and and so on. And uh, you know he was quite impressed with everything, but said they'd already hired a strength and conditioning coach. Um, so if I was going to work with the side, it would have to be in a different capacity. And that's when he basically said, "Well, we can see, like, let's get you over there to the states." Um, I'll introduce you to the CEO and everything like that, and you'll basically have to kind of <laughs> kind of prove yourself that you can you can add value to this franchise in some way. Um, so that's kind of kind of a scary thought, right? It's kind of like, well, you don't really have a job. That he likes you, the head coach likes you, he wants to work with you, um, but you need to prove yourself to the to the franchise and to the CEO, and hopefully, you can get a job. Um, anyway, so with that, I ended up just jumping and and taking the opportunity. And a couple of months later was in the States here in Austin and, and kind of started to, to help the side prep for a big combine that they were going to have. In South Africa, we don't have that, right? We don't do combines to try players out to try and make a, a, a team. You know, that's not a thing. But obviously here with the NFL and everything like that, um, and with all of these different MLR franchises that we're going to start kicking up across the US, all of them were running these combines to try and find either convert players from NFL or from college football or from wherever to see if they were good enough to maybe try and become rugby players, right? So our strength conditioning coach who was hired to run all of this unfortunately wasn't there at the time uh, because of the visa issues, like I was saying, there was huge visa issues then um, to try and bring players over. And yeah, I ended up having to run run basically all of that. So from a high performance standpoint, I was running all of those those kind of different uh, aspects that we were testing and looking at, um, putting all of the statistics together, looking at analysis of that. And I was basically just handling that whole thing. And luckily, through that kind of initial period and that lead up and obviously sitting in all the meetings, adding input where I could, um, I, even at the time, I was trying to scout as well, scouting for players in the US and, and everything else, which was challenging because you don't know the landscape of US when you first land here. What, what, what does the rugby market look like? You know, how, do you go, how do you come across good players? How do you, you know, then sign these players? How do you convince these players to come down here? Um, so there was a lot of like talking and calling different coaches all around. And anyway, luckily I was able to convince, uh, convince the CEO and, and, uh, the head coach that I I was worth the investment. And they offered me a job as the kind of skills coach, um, and also the technical analyst. So I was going to run all analysis, um, and also obviously handle any of the micro skills stuff for the players. Uh, it would be my job to basically organize all of that and also run it if I had the time to. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up kind of landing that role. So it was very, very much just obviously having a, a connection, um, and then just be willing to take a chance, you know, I mean, it, it could have easily ended up that I landed here in Austin. Uh, I wasn't good enough or they didn't like what they saw. Um, I didn't offer enough input and I could have just been on a plane home to South Africa, you know, so was, was very lucky and very fortunate, but uh, I feel like I worked pretty hard to, to, uh, convince them. So anyway, okay. yeah, that's, that's how I kind of started into, into, uh, working with a pro team.
0: Wow, it's like all the sort of cliched sayings bundled into one. It's like oh, what <laughs> yeah, you know, I know, but who you know. Yeah, but sure. it's like you get your foot in the door. Just graft.
1: yeah, and then you got to just graft and, and work, yeah. And
0: then you, yeah, oh, wow, that's and then like right place, the right time, just you know, um, taking a leap of faith. I mean, literally all the cliches, but like it all worked out in your favor. So yeah, that's amazing. Um, it's another theme that sort of runs across a lot of these stories that I have with people is that all of them seem to have like a very similar sort of trajectory, I can't even say the word. (laughs) Trajectory. (laughs) Trajectory. Uh, As it happens, you wake up early and don't have your coffee. Yeah, Um, it's all good. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's just like, Turning opportunities into success seems to be something that successful sports people um, are consistently good at doing. And it makes sense because obviously there's loads of people all competing for the same positions and the people that get those positions are those people that jump at the opportunity. Or, uh, for example, if you're a cricketer and you get a chance to play in the first side, if you go out and score 100 runs... um, then all of a sudden you know you're back you're in contention next week, um, and so yeah you know, it's amazing that it's even true in your situation where you were given a chance and then by taking that chance you opened up so many other doors for yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I, I think if you look across like I mean most coaches I think if you speak to them will all say the same thing somewhere along the lines they were given a lucky break by someone or they just happened to know someone at an organisation. Who gave them an in? I mean, all of the so a lot of the the people I studied with at um, at Springfield College um, have gone on to achieve pretty good things and work in you know top organizations. There's guys that are at the Cardinals at the baseball team that are working with them now as their kind of head of strength and conditioning um, and things like that. And and you know these things don't just it's not like they just fall into their lap, right? It's like they luckily knew someone or they networked or they were constantly talking to different coaches and that's what got their foot in the door. And then once their foot's in the door. You know, you never start like at the top. You're always going to start at the bottom. You're the low man and you've got to figure out a way to show your value to be able to really start climbing that ladder. Um, and, yeah, I don't think there's anyone who will tell you a different story. It's all going to be the same. You know, it's like it's it's just getting that foot in the door initially, working your butt off, and then hopefully with that, you start climbing the ladder slowly but surely. But, um, yeah, I mean, the stories will all be the same, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, once you do enough conversations with people, you start to see – the themes um, that are quite similar across different people's careers. Um, and it's, it's really, I think useful insight um, to anyone either who's like prospectively looking at sport as a career or to people that are in it already kind of just starting out and then being able to learn that certain, there are certain things that need to kind of work in your favor mm-hmm. that are out of your control, but there are also other things that you can control. Like you mentioned hard work, Um, networking, you know, putting yourself out there, uh, taking your chances. Um, I wanted to go back to something you said about the combine, because obviously um, some people might not be familiar with what a combine is. Can you quickly just describe what a combine is? I've got a a follow-up question to ask you about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a combine, like I said, is basically we are trying to look at different performance metrics of, of multiple uh players and, or player sets, obviously, you, you might be looking at uh, like certain groups, right? Like you might be looking at your fly halves, you might be looking at wingers, you might be looking at centers and so on and trying to look at different performance metrics from either like literally skill-based. So what we had to do is literally come up with skill-based tests. Um, and Donnie De who, uh, worked with the Buelan Cavaliers, uh, he's coached the Romanian national team. He was our, uh, backs coach at the time and also one of the assistant coaches and he helped kind of develop, or he should, he mainly came up with the skill-based set that we were looking at, uh, for the backs. And then for the forwards, I was working with Piedri Vandenberg, who I'm sure you know, Stace, he was an ex-Springbok, um, ex-Blue Bulls, um, unfortunately passed away recently, um, which was very sad, but, um. Yeah. He was a wonderful, a wonderful guy. Um, sorry. And yeah, just anyway, no problem. Oh, uh, yeah, still not a, still not a hundred percent over it. Uh, it was just a bit of a shock, but he was a, he was a really, really, uh, a great guy and, uh, he, he helped the forwards set up kind of their skill based stuff. And then I came up with some of the performance metrics as far as what we were looking at, um, for, let's say, you know, sprint speed or jump length or power outputs, all of that type of stuff, what we were kind of looking at. And, we ran them, you know, we ran all these players through all these different tests and then we, we tried to separate, you know, try to weight each of those different things to show whether we felt that they could maybe translate into becoming pro players or semi-pro and then pro players eventually. So, um, yeah, it's just an opportunity to really test out different metrics for players. And it's, it's just in South Africa, it's not necessary because it's, it's, uh, there's almost a natural selection process because of the number of players. It becomes very easy where for us, you know, we, there's not enough players. So we are always trying to find more bodies or more players to come in. And the only way to do that is you have to start looking outside the box, right? You need to start looking at guys coming from other sports to try and convert them into rugby players. Uh, we converted a, a NFL guy or not an NFL guy, I should say an NCAA uh, football guy um, into a flanker. And he was hugely successful for us. And he was monumental in us winning the national title. He was a very, very uh, powerful, strong runner. Um, and luckily, the coaches and Piedry worked very closely with him and helped him to kind of up his rugby IQ to get him to a point where he could actually be useful on the field and be, you know, a substantially good player. So, sorry, that was a very long-winded uh, no, no, it's good. answer um, of what a combine is. But yeah, that's basically what a combine is.
0: Okay, cool. No, it's good to. I like I like it when people go into details because it gives a different insight and perspective to something that they otherwise might not know too much about. That's very unique, eh? Hey, because as a South African exactly what you said, you know, you don't need that sort of thing because there's just so many rugby players. Uh, It would be absolutely chaotic if you did that because there'd just be so many players showing up. I mean, you'd have to be there for days on end trying to get everyone um, measured and tested. Um, And I didn't even think about it coming from that point of view of not having enough players. It's a way to try and sort of get more guys into the fold, trying to encourage them to come and play rugby.
1: Um, Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what half the outreach was, right? was like, come and try rugby. You know, the rugby is going professional. Come and try rugby, come to the combine and see if you could make it as a pro rugby player. And of course, people don't realize like, right, you look at the NFL and you're like, well, yeah, the NFL is a big, you know, there's a lot of teams, 32 teams, it's a massive league, but like across those 32 teams, you know, there are so many guys who just didn't even make it to the NFL. You know, they couldn't quite hack it. And that's the vast majority, you know, only the 1% basically makes the NFL and everyone else falls away. And all of those guys are amazing athletes, right? Like crazy athletes. And um, they're always worth trying to attract to rugby, like attract towards rugby. Um, But it's not always easy because of course the financial means that uh, the MLR had in the beginning is not going to be very attractive to any of those guys who, you know, who are expecting massive contracts coming to the NFL or, um, you know, even playing for like, not even the NFL playing for like the CFL in Canada or something along those lines. Um, the pay is just obviously significantly higher than anything the mlr could ever ever muster probably within the next five to ten years so um you know that was a big struggle too is also convincing guys financially to make moves or to get to really commit themselves to rugby in the beginning
0: okay yeah that makes a lot of sense and then just out of interest um do you think a system like that does it work because i mean are they not i've always wondered about this in terms of American sports and especially with the f- American football, surely there are guys or there are people in sports that there are things that aren't really measurable, like intangible things that would make a player better than another player. Like, for example, one guy is mentally very strong. So he can take defeat, bounce back, and doesn't really affect him much. Whereas another guy loses a game, um, destroys his confidence because he had a bad game, and just can't find form of it. Like, does it work in a sense of of finding people there is it the case that there's always going to be people that slip through the cracks and you only kind of find out later
1: yeah i mean it's going to be tough right because you're looking at performance metrics and it's where the nfl combine kind of runs into the same issues and where the where they try really hard um to get a sense about player character and that is probably the hardest thing about like scouting or signing players um is really trying to figure out what what they're made of right and it's their coaches, of course, at their teams want them to be successful too. So you, you you almost have to like try and get a broad view of what their character is like. Like not only speak to their head like their head coach, maybe speak to like one of their trainers, um, like multiple people just trying to figure out like, do how do you feel like this person is going to do, like how will they deal with like rejection or not being selected on the weekend? Let's say for, for the weekend, we decide he's not good enough. We're going to play someone else. Is, is it going to destroy his confidence? Will he be able to bounce back? Um, things like that. And these were some of the conversations we were trying to have in the beginning. Um, but it was very, it's very limited as far as what you can find out about players before signing them in the U S because there is just such like the network is so thin, you know, it's such a small, thin network. Um, it's a very difficult place to really, um, find out everything you probably like to, um, So a lot of it, you're taking it on faith and hoping that players are going to come or that you can maybe help them or the coaches can help them to develop into those guys who are mentally resilient to be able to you know, take take some of these setbacks that they might have to face. And in in professional rugby, you will have lots. There will be lots of setbacks. It's never going to just be the smooth sailing road. And I think for us, what was probably one of the biggest struggles is we went, right? We came in semi-professional, playing obviously club rugby here, where we only had five players, I think, that we were paying at the time, and ended up winning the national title for club rugby, right? And then the next year, the MLR started, so a professional league, where we have multiple teams across the U.S. who are now professional, paying professional players, and I felt like some of our players really struggled mentally to change the mindset that they would have to give, like they'd won the national title, where they felt that they'd given everything that they could give to win that title. But now it's like you have to take a step up. You have to go to another level to play that pro, pro game. All of a sudden, you're playing against guys who have been playing, you know, overseas in Japan or playing for, you know, super rugby before. Um, and that's a huge thing. You know, it's, it's a really big thing to kind of all of a sudden go from being the best side in the country to all of a sudden now you're playing professional teams and you're struggling. You know, not, it's not always easy. You're going to have games where you get smashed or games where, you know, things just don't go your way. Um, and I felt like a lot of guys did struggle with that mentally, especially in the first, I'd say two to three years. It almost took players two to three years to really adjust to being in that professional kind of, um, mindset of like, every game is going to be a battle. Every game is going to be a fight. Um, and if you're not at 110%, every single game, um, you're in trouble, you know, a small drop off in the, in the professional game, um, is a huge drop off in performance. So it's your, your margin for error becomes so small, you know, and I'm sure if you speak to swimmers, they'll tell you the same thing. I mean, if they just offer it by a percent, it's, it, you know, it's a difference between first or third or not even placing. So uh, rugby is very similar. You have to be at a hundred percent, like giving it everything and your whole team has to be, you have to have 15 guys doing that if you want to pull in the same direction and be successful. And unfortunately in the years that followed in the MLR, we, we couldn't really get that, you know? Okay. So it was tough. It was tough.
0: I reckon that's a perfect point to segue towards your experience in the MLR and with your Austin side. Um, could you maybe speak to that process of uh, how you went in there? And as you said, you know, very successful before turning pro, and then maybe walk through the process of going from amateur rugby to professional rugby in terms of a club from a franchise point of view. Um, and then also, I'd like to know. Uh, if if you remember to answer as well, how did they um, select the teams to put into the M L R? Was it like a did you have to put your name forward and those kind of things? Uh, maybe you could touch on that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean we can we can probably start there. That's probably a good place to kind of start. So the M L R was obviously put together with a bunch of um, a bunch of I don't want to say owners, but a, a couple of kind of stakeholders that felt. Like the game was ready. Obviously, they tried PRO rugby, um, which is why Piedri was kind of here um, before. He was already here before the MLR. and He was here to play in the in the kind of failed league that they started at the time. But that was a really a really strange league. There was one owner basically who owned like the whole league, and then you had all these different franchises, and there was just issues with payments and all types of things that were going on. And players were disgruntled, and staff were disgruntled, and anyway, that collapsed and fell apart. Um, And then that's when all of these different stakeholders were like, well, there is room for a professional league here. It just needs to be run well. Um, So they all kind of came together and said, well, you know, we feel like this would be a good market. We feel like there's enough players. Obviously, regionally, you also need to have the, the players to be able to kind of back up moving into a professional setup. You know, starting it in a region like that, let's say, is not a strong rugby region uh somewhere in the US and then having a franchise there is not going to work because you're just not going to have any players that are gonna be able to feed into that network to be able to keep that team afloat. Obviously now they've started to do draft like a draft system where they kind of you know allocate players from the universities to go to different teams to make sure that the talent is spread out. Um, but when we first came in there was no such thing. When we first came in it was literally every man for themselves you try and get your hands on as many players as you possibly can. Um, or have a really good feeding network. And obviously in Texas, there's quite a strong rugby community. We have the Austin Huns here in Austin, which are a good club. And then we also have the Austin Blacks, which are also a good club. Um, And with these two clubs, we had a very strong rugby community with strong rugby players constantly being pushed upwards in the funnel towards the MLR. Now, obviously, there was a lot of, uh, like, having a, a team go professional inside that had its own struggles. And the Huns, of course, who... Were basically the side that splintered and became the Austin Elite in the MLR. Um, terrible name, I know, but they kind of splintered, splintered off. That was a huge thing for the Huns to to undertake, and a thing that took them a long time to recover from is kind of having you know a part of the club kind of fracture off to become this professional entity. Um, but yeah, I mean, sorry, I've kind of lost track now. But no, that's, that's kind so. of how that's <laughs> that's kind of how the the Austin based side ended up coming into being. Um, but sorry, you, you want to give just give me a quick prompt or tell me what, what it was that yeah. you were saying
0: uh, or so asking? That's basically how the MLR kind of chose. So it was ba- selected on regions based on their capability to sustain a franchise side, um, because obviously it wouldn't make business sense to have um, a rugby side in a region where there's no rugby players, because then obviously you've got no feeding network, you can't get a side off the ground. Okay, so cool. Yeah. That kind of explains that yeah. side.
1: Yeah, I mean, somewhat. And, and stakeholders, just, you know, you know, businessmen okay. or whatever saying, yeah, I'm, I'm going to put money in and I'm going to support this side. So a lot of it was them also having the funds and proof of funds that they could support a team, especially initially. Um, so there was like down big down payments and stuff uh, put in place to make sure that these franchises were actually going to be um, functioning and not have issues with payment to players and so on. So, of course, we also had salary cap and everything. Uh, there was also imposed on us for signing players and everything uh, as well. And of course, teams found ways around that. If you have a rich owner, he's obviously trying to find gray areas to exploit. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how the MLR came, came to be.
0: Okay, perfect. And then um, sort of the next step is um, what happened thereafter? So maybe you can talk a little bit about that season before um, mm-hmm. and the successes you had. And maybe why you already touched on it a little bit when you converted over into professional rugby, why they struggled a bit. Um, sure. And your time there, because I think for those of you who don't know, CJ and I spoke um, about this offline, and <clears throat> he touched on a little bit about his experience. It was quite a quite a roller coaster ride, I think, to say the mm-hmm. least. And yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Maybe you can speak a bit about that and uh, the. Both the, the plus sides and also some of the negatives that you find sure. in professional sport.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is. It, the sport will give you the highest highs, but the lowest lows, unfortunately. That's kind of how it works. You know, there's, it's never going to be great forever, even for strong dynasties. Dynasties come to an end too. Um, but for us, obviously, 2017 was an amazing year. I, fe- I felt like we... We had a very strong base at the Huns of players that, you know, from the guys that we brought in, we brought in fantastic players too. So the, the the five guys we brought in were instrumental in in helping us, obviously, like uplift the whole squad and the whole team. But you also had very good coaches. Like Donny de Villiers was amazing. Piedri was good. And with that, we also obviously had the head coach at the time who was more – it's hard to say he was a head coach he was more of a director rugby like in a in a role perspective he was more kind of the director of rugby role he wasn't really hands-on at the field at all Um, he mainly was just trying to make sure everything was managed well and you know the team was looked after and there was he was that buffer between the coaching staff and obviously the coaching staff is always asking for the maximum from the owners Um, and you know the director of rugby is trying to kind of coax that out of the owners as best he can Uh, and that was kind of his role and then your two assistant coaches were the two main guys. And Donnie was kind of the mastermind between our, of our attacking uh, formation and the way we played was all kind of Donnie de Villiers. Um, and he did an amazing job of that. He really turned us into a, like a frightening attacking side. You know, even if teams uh, felt like they could try and keep us quiet for maybe half a game, the second half of the game, we were definitely going to score and we were going to always score more than you. So even if you scored 20, we were going to score 30. And that's just the way, that's just the way it was. Um, and obviously through that year, we felt like we had quite a, the Huns had a kind of chip on their shoulder. They'd been a club that had really always wanted to be competitive. Uh, they struggled, you know, even within kind of Austin and Texas, they were struggling to to be very competitive with like the Austin Blacks who had more funding. Uh, the Dallas Harlequins had a lot of funding back in the day as well. Uh, and the Huns always felt like, well, they were the, the nearly their team, but never could really push on. Um, and then obviously bringing in the coaches and bringing in these players saw, you know, the Huns uplifted and the Huns had a real chip on their shoulder. They really wanted to, to prove that they were good players. And that's why I said, yes, it was instrumental to bring these five guys or six guys in. Um, but the rest of the players that were all already Huns, um, I mean, they just raised their level massively. And you could just tell they just wanted it more. I mean, you would, we would play the Blacks, um, who are cross-town rivals, who are always kind of the best side in, in uh, Austin and also in Texas, who would kind of go to the national championships. Um, and the Huns just wanted it more and having that kind of chip on the shoulder to be the best is a huge, it's a huge thing. I can't, I I don't think I can stress that enough. When you have guys who really are behind the coaches are behind what you're trying to achieve. Um, it's very hard to beat a team like that. It's very difficult. Even if they offer just slightly, they'll just want it more. So anything that's 50, 50, they're going to win. Um, and that's what I felt like was really great about that 2017 year, you know, um, and also convincing guys who, of course, were working full-time jobs at the time to kind of basically figure out ways to get them to c- come to strength conditioning sessions at five o'clock in the morning, uh, get stronger, get faster, and then in the evenings come for a two-hour rugby practice. You know, and these guys had never experienced anything like that before. So convincing them to do that and having their buy-in was huge, and they did it, and they they believed in it, um, and obviously we ended up achieving. Uh, the national title in 2017 which was amazing and, and a real high you know you want to talk about what was one of my highlights it was was that and I was lucky enough at the time to to be playing I was on the field too so that was that was that was hugely unexpected you know that's I obviously started to you know when you are kind of doing skills and everything else you end up running around with the players a little bit and the head coach saw me play a little bit and said well looks like you can play and, and the, in the end I ended up playing Uh, a couple of games. I think I played five or six games uh, for the Huns in 2017. And yeah, I was lucky enough to kind of be on the field with the players. And that that also felt, uh, was an amazing feeling, you know. And obviously I got to play with Todd Clever, uh, who's an American rugby legend. And I'm sure some South Africans like the Lions franchise, I'm sure they'll know him. Yes. Um, Captain America. But he was, uh, yeah, he was, it was fun to play with him as well and be on the field with him and kind of share that moment with, you know, the Huns and with him. So it was, it was a very cool experience, you know. And that was kind of the high, right? That was the real big high. Then we move into, into the MLR, and now it's time to become professional. Unfortunately, there was some off-field incidents that happened with the head coach, um, and he had to go back to South Africa. So he was fired and uh, sent back to South Africa. Um, and we kind of saw a situation where uh, – and it's it's really complex. I'm not quite sure how to even explain it. But basically, Darnie ended up losing his job uh, as well. And unfairly at the time, I think he was kind of blamed for what happened to the head coach. Uh, but without going into too much or causing conjecture or anything like that, um, he ended up losing his job too. And that was a huge blow. When you have the guy who kind of masterminded uh, our 2017 uh, success, as far as like our attack went and really creating uh, and really getting great buy-in from the players, the players really believed in him uh, and knew how good of a coach he was. Uh, That's a huge thing. So when we kind of lost him, that was massive, uh, right? So basically you you were left with me, uh, James DeLacy, who was the strength coach, and uh, Piedri Vannenberg as the coaches that were left here. Um, so at the time, I was then offered the opportunity to take the assistant job as the backs coach um, for obviously for the MLR franchise. And which is a big step to, to go from the, the analysis or technical analysis to then being the, the backs coach in in one season is a, is a big step. You know, I really wanted to learn from Donnie and I was enjoying learning from Donnie. He was a fantastic coach, an amazing coach and improved players drastically. And for me, it, it was was really sad to see him go and uh, to not be able to learn off him was huge. Uh, so getting the opportunity to take the assistant job uh, was very, you know, when pe- people say, oh, you should just jump at it, right? Just say yes, but it was tough because I, I felt like I wasn't ready yet and I needed more time to learn and I wanted to still learn. Um, but they had, they'd offered it to me, and basically with the caveat that whoever was going to become the head coach was going to be able to mentor me and help me uh, along the way, and, and any any gaps that I might have in my skills as a coach, we're going to be able to be uplifted um, with the head coach coming in and helping. Um, unfortunately, we had a French CEO, and he thought it best to hire a French head coach. Now, I'm now I'm not. This isn't to, to slag off the French in any way or to say anything bad, but. You you really we really needed to keep that trajectory going, we needed a coach that would get buy-in very quickly from the players, like immediately basically. Um and unfortunately the head coach coming in could basically hardly speak English. Um okay. which was hugely damaging because you can imagine, you know, the players went from a high of winning everything and, and now starting this professional franchise, really excited about it. Um and now having a coach that they were really struggling to relate to and communicate with. Um So that was very difficult and very hard to kind of be part of that. And for me, from my perspective as a development side, it it also was tough because I wanted to really learn um, off of a coach. And unfortunately, it was was also the the same struggles the players were having with the same struggles I was having as a coach. uh, Being able to kind of be mentored by him was also very difficult. And uh, just so that everyone understands, uh, I have the utmost respect for him as a coach because he he'd achieved amazing stuff he'd coached in top 14 um and done very well there he'd coached in pro d2 as well um and i i love him as a person he was a great person he, he he's a great coach just was it was not the right fit job wise for him you know that we needed an english an english speaking coach that could buy in straight away immediately you know yeah. um so anyway that that obviously then led to all types of struggles that came with that recruiting was very tough as well to try and sign players and bring players in. We just didn't have the financial might to be able to compete with some of the other franchises. Other franchises had like billionaire owners and were finding gray areas. And when I mean gray areas, I mean, you know, under the table stuff to to pay players extra money uh, to come over and play guys like uh, Joe Peterson, who was playing at San Diego. And sorry, I'm not, I'm not throwing Joe under the bus. I'm, I'm what I'm saying is, uh, Joe was brought in by San Diego as a player. Um, we couldn't afford guys like that. We, we would have loved to have been able to afford players like Joe. Um, we were offered Matt Ghetto in the first season. I would have loved to have signed him and had him as, as my flyer. Um, but unfortunately, just couldn't. You know, we just didn't have that financial clout to be able to attract those guys. So I'm just like, you, know, you, you have to really search hard and long to find uh, quality players. And we felt like we did a pretty good job of putting, putting together a squad. Um, but it was very challenging. And like I said, trying to get the buy-in uh, with the head coach and trying to get the players bought in was very difficult and very challenging. So it was like an uphill battle from the very beginning. Um, and there was also off-field issues going on at the time uh, inside the franchises with players, you know, promised certain things and then things weren't being delivered from the higher-ups. And that, that also made, you know, you know things aren't going well off-field. Uh, things don't go well on-field either. So it's, uh, it's it, that was also extremely challenging and, and uh, had its own set of struggles. Um, But, yeah, that kind of led – that's what kind of started the ball rolling in kind of a bad direction for the franchise. So the the franchise had this beautiful birth, right, winning the national title, everything going well, and then basically losing your director of rugby, losing the guy who masterminded kind of the the whole game plan and everything that the team ran on and who the players loved, Um, and then having to start afresh and then basically making a bad appointment or a bad selection for the head coach. So it really did start off on a on a kind of bad uh, on bad footing, um, and and kind of was very difficult. It, it was always going to be uphill from there, you know.
0: Okay, yeah, that's um that's a tough a tough story because I mean, yeah, as you said, you know, you had such good times early on, and then you the expectation would be to continue those those moments forward, and then just through a couple of things outside of your control beyond your control, you lose key members to that coaching setup and everything just kind of starts to unravel. Um, it's very, it sounds very similar to like uh, the story about what's happening with Arsenal at the moment. Like those of you who don't know, for, uh, CJ will know, I'm an Arsenal supporter, I have been for a very long time. since about, I was about 11 years old. And essentially, you know, Arsene Wenger leaves, then there's a period of transitioning after having him been at the club for over 20 years um, and <laughs> there was this kind of like hated statement that that arteta and edu for the last few years have been saying like trust the process, trust the process um, and it's talking about sort of buy-in and stuff like that. they got rid of a lot of the players and the squad there's a lot more harmony in the squad now and it just seems like the players, although the squad is a bit thin in my opinion, there seems to be tons of buy-in from the players, and mm-hmm. you can see it. Look at the results at the moment; they're sitting top of the table, um, and nobody before the season would have said that Arsenal will be sitting top of the table. Come fourteen games being played, um, so I just thought it was very interesting you talking about buy- buy-in like that because it clearly is something that's crucial to high-level sports. Like you have to have the players buy into the vision of the coaches and the coaching staff. So that that's very interesting. And then another thing that you talked about was bringing in the wrong coach so like after Wenger left they brought in Una Emery who couldn't really speak English that well and i think that's almost exactly what happened there he lost the dressing room because he wasn't relatable he couldn't get mm-hmm. buy in as quickly as as they needed him to get um and then yeah i think he he lost <clears throat> control of the players and um and you seem to have experienced something very similar there it's it's, it's amazing how uh you if you listen enough and you watch enough um these kind of th- things and moments pop up across different sports and um yeah it's just interesting that you can see parallels even across completely different sports
1: yeah i mean it's it's the the buy in is is the biggest thing if everyone's pulling in the same direction um it makes everything a thousand times easier and that's when you like for instance like you were talking about arsenal now the the reason like this Arsenal side is not the best side in the league, right? We know that on paper they're not, but every single one of those players believes in what and what they're doing and what their coach is saying, and because of that, they're able to achieve or play better than what they should be. And uh, I mean, Man United starting to get into the same type of uh ta- 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 same type of situation with Ten Hag also kind of getting that buy-in. And really, getting the players pulling in the same direction, and that's like when you lose a dressing room, it's nearly impossible to get it back. And I and I mean that. It's if the dressing room goes, there's only two options. It's either the coach has to go, or you have to basically start getting getting rid of a lot of very influential and big players in the dressing room. And that, of course, to an owner, they go, "Well, what's easier? Well, you just get rid of a coach and you bring in a new coach because trying to move a whole squad around and and try to figure out the right blend uh, is very difficult and very hard. So. Yeah, unfortunately coaches have to wear that and, and they know that. I mean, we know that. If you work in sport, you know that. It, it's gonna fall on you, you'll have to wear that and take it. So it kind of comes with the territory, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. I always feel that coaches and management always get the short end of the stick. Um very interestingly enough, there's a ex Arsenal player, he also played for Everton as well, um, Kevin Campbell. Mm-hmm. Um and he always says that he, his belief, he always says, it's the players. Like the players, at the end of the day, determine the success of the club. They can, you know, they can sort of come in with a poor attitude and to basically boycott if they wanted to. You know, if you had mm-hmm. enough influential players in the dressing room saying to the other guys, "No, nah, like I don't, I don't like this coach. Like I don't feel like we should play for him." You know, you can change the whole mindset of the team. And he says, like your players are number one. Um, so you have to have the players on board. Once the players on board, anything is possible. Um, and as you said, you know, I think that's quite evident from both uh, Arsenal's point of view, and I think you, know, I think you're right. I think Man United is slowly getting there. Although um, a little bit off topic, but just as a Man United fan, did you see the interview with Ronaldo, or have you heard about the leaks? For the interview with Piers Morgan,
1: yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, I, yeah, I'm a huge United fan, so yeah, I'm, I'm always kind of got my finger on the pulse of what's going on there. So yeah, it's a terrible situation, um, but again, I don't want to. It's hard. I think one thing coaching has always kind of taught me is you you wait until you understand the full the full uh, scope of the situation before you make a comment on it. So yes. for me, I, I want to kind of see the interview and, and see. And also hear from Ten Hag or hear from uh, the management at United exactly what went down because at the moment, it's basically the ones calling the other a liar and vice versa. So um, it'll be very interesting to kind of see how this all plays out. I, I mean, Ronaldo's done for sure. He, he won't play another game for Man United. That's, that's over. And I, to be honest, I think the club made a mistake bringing him in uh, at the beginning. I think they should have rather... Um, they should have rather gone with a younger option, uh, a younger striker that they could have brought in to try and develop and, and keep on uh, building in, in in this kind of younger, new generation of players. Uh, but unfortunately, when you have a club run by the Glazers who who want money and uh, marketing symbols, I mean, there's no bigger marketing symbol than Ronaldo. So when I saw when I saw what was happening with Man City, I knew United were going to get involved. Uh, and unfortunately, they took the bait and they ended up signing him. So. I actually don't think City were really that interested. I think it was. Uh, I think they he was kind of used by Mendes, uh, or City was used by Mendes to get the the move to Man United. So, anyway, yeah. uh, it's off topic, but yeah, it's it's a it's a bad situation too because it's it sows doubt in players' minds about who maybe wants to join Man United now and everything else. So it's it's a PR disaster, and it'll be very interesting to see how the club kind of now work their way out of this rubbish situation yeah. that they're in.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to actually I saw a lot of people commenting online and I was like, but you haven't even watched the full interview yet. You don't even know the scope of what what's going on. So I thought that, that what you said there is very, very important. People are very quick to judge, especially like the social media internet age. Um, I don't really have a horse in the race because like I'm not a Man United fan, but I'm very interested to see what he has to say. And also, as you said, you know what the club has to say. Um the one the one reason why I brought him up in particular was from what it appears, from what I've seen and what Piers Morgan has said, is that it almost... He he hasn't outright said it, but it it appears as if he was made promises off-field and then uh, I think once results started going the wrong way in the beginning of the season, maybe the club had to sit down and say "Oof, maybe it's not going to work going forward with Ronaldo being in the role that we wanted him to be in. And maybe, I think, it just seems like that kind of might be the where things sort of started falling apart because as a player, you know, as you said, you make promises to a player and then you renege on those promises. It's obviously going to cause friction and he's not just any player. He's one of the biggest sports people in the world at the moment and one of the greatest soccer players and a huge sports icon. Um, so yeah, I think that that those two things clashing seem to be, to me, would would be the start of, of the relationship falling apart because I can't imagine really anything else causing that
1: yeah i mean it and the thing is it's like players see this is where it's tough right and this is where you just we don't know what happened because if i mean it could be something where things kind of fell apart when you know he his daughter was sick and everything else happened and, and he needed time off and you know maybe the club was harsh and didn't let him have time off and told him well no you need to come back you need to train so that could be part of it then it could also be you know obviously like you were saying What promises were made? Was he promised he was going to be the number nine? Was he going to lead the line the whole year? Um, And the problem was, like you said, when things go bad and then they go, well, you know, when we play Marshall or when we play one of the other players, Rashford, for instance, then all of a sudden results start to turn around and and the the team looks like it's functioning better together. Um, Did the club basically decide to kind of go, well, you know what? He's not going to be our main player. He'll be like the Europa League player who will play for the smaller games. And unfortunately, like some most players would probably be okay with that. They'd understand that you would have to change your promise and, and, and respect it. But Ronaldo is Ronaldo and he ain't going to stand there and, and, uh, and let you tell him that he's only a Europa League player. You know, he only, exactly. you know, the joke always was before the season, you know, he doesn't even know what the Europa League music sounds like. He's only ever heard Champions League, <laughs> you know, so, you know, so it's, I mean, I, I, his ego is big, right? So it, it's going to be interesting. Let's see, let's see what comes out. Let's see what, what both parties say. Uh, and then we can make make a judgment on there. But either way, he's done at United. United need to move on from him. They need to start moving in a new like direction with kind of a new manager at the helm and with kind of new a new outlook on the future. I think they need to move past like the the older generation. I mean, what are, are we going to have Patrice Evra now come in as well and start, you know, leading uh, leading things at Carrington as well? No, you you got to move on. You know, you got to move on.
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I get. I think that's basically exactly what happened at the Gunners. Like they moved on a ton of players, and I think uh, changed the culture as well. And I think maybe that's something United need to also do. But yeah, you know, it's tough, as you said in your other earlier remarks. You know, um, from a business point of view, what's easier? Is it easier to move on a whole bunch of players who have got who've been tied up in all these contracts? Now you have got to pay them out to get them to go, um, or is it easier to try and get a, a coach or a management team that can take that? existing group and, like, turn them around. Um, yeah, it's always, you've got to always weigh those two against the other. And I think Arsenal did that the first time around with Emery. And then, I think, second time around um, with Arteta, they just said to him, look, what do you think you need? And he, I think he turned around and said, look, if I'm going to take the job, you'll allow me to completely, like, tear this team down and rebuild it. Um, yeah, but it's... You have, have to. To. So you have to. You have to. Yeah, you have to. I think you so have
1: to. So, yeah, there's no in-between, like, right? So, like, you... So, Chelsea... So Chelsea is kind of an anomaly, right? Where you you watch a team that basically has fired and hired coaches at an unbelievable rate, like crazy rate, but have seen success because every time they do that, they basically back the managers initially and back them with huge money, right? Massive money. Um, and so they kind of the anomaly, but a lot of that also has to do with how good the staff was that that, that was working with that manager. Like their recruiting has always been unbelievable up until probably the last couple of seasons where things have gone really bad after they lost that. I can't remember what the the woman's name is, but she was basically their head of recruiting under Abramovich where they basically had all of these successes of just all of these hits. And Liverpool had the same situation uh, at the beginning of Klopp's years uh, where they also now have lost that head of recruiting and are now struggling to find players for good market value. Um, So that's why all of a sudden that's become like the new hot topic, like a director of football or someone who's head of, you know, scouting or whatever. Um, but at some point you have to stop doing the hiring and firing. You have to find a coach who you believe in, believe in their vision and basically just go, we're gonna back you to the hilt, whatever you need to do with you know, getting rid of guys like Obama Yang or players like that. And you do it if you need to and we'll back you and we'll believe in you. And we'll if it takes three years, it takes three years. If it takes four or five, we'll back you. And unfortunately, you have to do that if you want long term success. You can have yeah. short term success like Chelsea have, but it's a very up and down model and it's you you never can really build a you're not going to build a dynasty like Sir Alex or like Arsene Wenger. It's just not going to happen like that. It's just going to be like these yeah. one-off blips, you know. If you want that pep, like Man City, like real dynasty, you have to really back a manager and just say whatever you need, we, we're going to do it. And uh, even yeah. if it if, even if it upsets the fans initially, right? Yeah, you, you yeah, have exactly. to. You have
0: to do it. You have to do. It. I, I agree with that 100. I think uh, maybe even one of the big reasons for that. The churn in managers in the Premier League—it's—it's quite—it's quite hectic. How much they churn. I think Chelsea didn't help all the other clubs as well. You know what I mean? Like no, Chelsea, no, no. Chelsea getting success by doing that, then all the other clubs start looking around, and being like, "Wait a minute!" But Chelsea's But then, as you said, the big problem there is that there's a huge investment from Abramovich. Like he was going into personal debt for the club, um, or not personal debt. Sorry, he was funding from from a personal side. Whereas a lot of owners aren't willing to do that. They aren't willing to go into their own pocket to fund the club. Um, They want to run it like a business, like Liverpool, Arsenal, Man United. Man United. Yeah. Yeah. They they want to be run like a. the American owners, especially seem to want to run the club as a profitable business rather than Uh, dipping into their pocket.
1: And matching players to the coaching, uh, sorry, matching the, like the coaching profile to the player profile is something that is so important to like, that 's why you need a director of football to ensure that those are both aligned because if they're not, look at what 's happening at Chelsea now, right Chelsea have spent like two hundred and fifty million, and basically not a single one of those players was signed by the manager or was the manager's choice. Then they bring in this manager who's like plays a completely different style to the previous manager, and now they're trying to now figure he 's trying to figure out how to make these pieces work, and it just looks like he doesn't know what his best eleven is, what the best formation is and players that looked great under him that have now playing at Chelsea like Cucurella look like lost they don't even know yeah. like that player doesn't even look like the same player anymore and that's why like finding those correct profiles of the coach to match the team is also vital and uh, and Chelsea didn't care they were just like we'll sign a new manager we'll spend 250 million 400 500 million in 2 years and uh, the team will be fine again and unfortunately like there's no long term success with that and what Liverpool has done really well, obviously, is already backed the manager, backed the kind of vision of the club, just with very minimal funding. And unfortunately, now their recruiting hasn't been great. So I feel like Liverpool's going to be in for, for a couple of tough seasons to come. Uh, but Man City are just like the golden example anywhere in football of if you were to run a team, this is the way you should run it. Um, even the prices that they fetch for for players they sell is insane. So they, they basically, like, people say, well, they've spent this much. Yeah, but they've also recruit, recouped a huge amount of money from players that yeah. have gone on to play in other teams in other places. So, um, unfortunately, you know, it's just you've got to match those profiles. If you don't match those profiles, just you're going to be in for long-term hurt, basically.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, what's interesting about that is that you're clearly speaking from a background where you've gone through that even on the rugby side. I know that mm-hmm. was a bit of a tangent for everyone listening, but, I mean, the uh, – it's important to, to realize that like, these things are cro- across sports, especially team sports, where you're fitting, as, as CJ said, you know, you're fitting players in almost like a jigsaw puzzle. They've got to match the coaching profile. They've got to match the other players around them. Certain players um, gel and other players don't. Um, and I think at the pro level, what's even more complicated is you've got egos, massive egos coming into the dressing room oh yeah um, and then those egos can potentially clash with the guy if you bring in a new guy he cla- his ego clashes with the established players so it's it's very complicated um, and it's very difficult to get right
1: yeah I, don't, I think I think people underestimate how difficult it is to create a winning formula I think people think it's very easy it's extremely hard it, you you basically need every like all of these different components to work at a hundred percent and the problem is that is it's so difficult it's so difficult to do and that's why it's very like when you have these teams that can maintain success for so long like the patriots here in football um you know man city things like that it's hugely impressive and it just shows how well run they are as an organization um you know what you see on the field is often a reflection of how good the kind of the backroom staff is and i don't mean the coaches what i mean is literally like how good is the management is the management on top of everything are they running it like a tight ship you know do they know all the inner workings um everything like that and unfortunately all of those all of those metrics need to be 100 percent. otherwise your team is going to struggle uh you can have the best players in the world but if if uh if things off field are bad or if the organization is a shambles um it's going to be very difficult to get those players to buy in and to get them to believe in what the club is trying to achieve so um yeah there's all types of struggles man it's it's Getting that winning formula is a. Uh, it's like trying to put a witch's brew together and just sprinkling in different ingredients, and it's just got to be the perfect amount of everything to get it right, you know?
0: Yeah. And even then, you could have competition who's also doing those things right. And on the day, you lose the final, you lose the semi final, and that's the harsh reality of sport. Like, you can mm-hmm. get everything right, and still, sometimes, if you just come up against a better opponent, that's you know that's how the cookie crumbles sometimes,
1: yeah, it's just yeah, it is what it is man and, and yeah, and listen, pro sports is harsh there's no there's no room for like sentiments and things like that it's just it's just you know eat or be eaten unfortunately, and it's it's uh I think a lot of people look for like they see the romance right, they watch a documentary, a sports documentary, and it's all it's all romantic and stuff, but it it almost never shows you any of the really tough stuff that goes on in the background, like when I mean the tough stuff, I mean the conversations that are painful to have. You know, telling players they aren't going to play, or you know, guys who have been working really hard and then get injured, or they have a like. For instance, we had a guy who ended up um, getting uh, concussion syndrome, and with concussion syndrome, basically, was told by the doctor he needed to stop playing, otherwise, he was definitely going to have you know CTE. It was without a doubt he was going to have CTE, and you know, having that conversation with him and and just how difficult that is when a player realizes that the career is over and the tears and everything that comes with it. So. No, I mean, documentaries show sport to be this beautiful, glorious thing, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of people and humans involved and uh, all of the struggles that come with that, you know. All of those players aren't robots that you see on the field. They all, uh, they all have lives and girlfriends and love lost and love made, and it's super complicated, man.
0: It's super complicated. Yeah, like I just – the one thing that I've definitely picked up on from speaking to people who've had involvement in professional sports and it's what you're touching on is – it's not all glitz and glam like that you see on the on the sports adverts and on the billboards, and you know um there are some rough and dark times for for the people involved, and I think from the outside, looking in as supporters or spectators, I think we don't realize sometimes that those are human beings, and the way that that some players and people are treated in sport. Um, when you sit with this kind of perspective it's it's quite dis- well, not i wouldn't say disgusting but it's it's almost like a lack of insight into the like how difficult everything is and how complex everything is because you just look at them almost like a an action figure on a on a on a field and you think oh that's like why is he not doing it better um you don't know what's going on in those people's lives you don't know what what's happening behind the scenes you just as you said you're seeing the final pieces of the process Um, that are a true reflection of what's going on behind the scenes
1: yeah an 80 minute game or a 90 minute game depending on what you know what sport it is but that's that's all you're getting as your window into what's actually happening and anything you see on social media has been very much crafted specifically for the audience it's not the real situation of what's going on and clubs do a very good job of that of course to create that kind of connection and buy-in from the fans to to connect with the players but it's not the reality and it's not the hard conversations. It's not the tough times. It's not the dark times. You know, you never see any of the dark times. You don't see the conversation when a team is winless, right? They're, they're in their fourth game, fifth game of the season. They haven't won a game. What do those conversations look like? How do they feel? You know, what do they sound like? What are the players saying behind the coach's back? What are the coaches saying about the players? You see none of that, you know, and those are hard, hard conversations and are very tough to be part of. You know, obviously we, in, in the second MLR season, like oh, we went winless, And I can't tell you how, how badly that hurts from a coaching perspective, especially when you are like, when I mean inches away and a penalty away from winning games, and you just, things just don't fall your way. And we, it almost, it almost felt like it was a curse. And I, and I, and I know that sounds weird to hear, but it, we felt, it felt like a cursed franchise almost. And it, it was so frustrating from a coaching perspective, especially when you knew the guys were better than that. And they just would make one mistake two minutes before the end of the game and it would cost the game. And you would just be like, like that wasn't in the game plan. That isn't a, at all how we designed that or our defensive system or anything. And just one mistake, one slip, one miss tackle, and it's over. And that's pro sports, man. Pro sports is brutal from a, from a 2017 year winning a national title to going winless two years later. Was a was a heck of a uh, humbling. Let me tell you. Yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, that's some of the darkest times of my life, man, work, working at the time, I was working three jobs. So I was working, I was the assistant coach and backs coach. I was working, uh, doing the strength and conditioning, um, and I was doing the analysis. Now, if anyone, if anyone who's worked at pro sports ever speaks to you, let me tell you all, all three of those on their own are full-time jobs. But when you spread yourself across all three of those, trying to, trying to work week to week between fixtures, um. It's extremely stressful. Up, up very early and going to sleep very late, and very little time for your spouse or significant other, um, or spending time with them. And uh, it takes a toll on you. It really beats you down. I mean, I I was struggling to sleep a lot. The stress was so bad I couldn't really sleep uh, anymore. And by the way, I don't want people to feel bad for me or anything like that. It's part of the territory. It was just I was so determined. You know, it was my own doing. I was so determined to find a way. Anything, any type of metric that I could find or insight I could find in the data. or in the video analysis that I could find that could maybe help us win a fixture, I was I was going to try and find. Um, and unfortunately, like when you get into that snowball effect of losing, yeah, yeah. like winning is a habit, losing is a habit too. And when the players don't believe anymore, it becomes very hard to win games. And the players really, I would say they gave up probably halfway through the season where they just didn't believe that they were good enough anymore. Um, and that was tough. And that was a really, that was really hard because like even trying to talk to them to keep them motivated or keep them motivated at trainings. I mean, you can feel as a coach, you can really feel those training sessions, the quality of a training session, just going down, down and down through the weeks, um, with the results, just not going that way. And it becomes toxic, man. It really does become toxic players start, uh, getting down on each other, shouting at each other. You start getting clicks in the dressing room. Um, and once those clicks start to develop, it's nearly impossible to break them. Um, and that's why I'm saying that the, the unity of a team between the staff, the management and the players and everything to keep that a harmonious um, team pulling in the same direction is so difficult. It's yeah. so challenging. And I, I really got an ex- to, to experience that um, and to see it at its highest highs, but at, at the lowest lows and in, in the real doldrums and in the dark. Luckily, our record of, of a winless season was beaten this past season by by the Dallas by the Dallas Jackals. So okay. I don't feel so bad anymore. My, my my I don't have to be associated with the worst record in the MLR anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean that's that's it's part and parcel of working in sport. You know, you'll feel highs, you'll feel lows, and then you you take it and you learn what you can. And um, yeah, I th- I felt like I learned a lot. You know, I learned a lot.
0: Okay, epic, and. Um, unfortunately, CJ, I've got to wrap soon. I've got to start getting ready for work, such as the life of a podcaster/slash school teacher. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to ask you, just to wind down, um, from your perspective, someone who's played and coached at that level, um, what do you? What are the things that you would say you need that are essential? To do well in professional sports, like as a sportsman or a coach, can you name a couple of things? Just some of your insights, and then sure. uh, Secondly, uh, actually, wait. You can answer that first. Okay. Otherwise, yeah, sure. Too much. Then maybe you.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go off on tangents and then you're going to (laughs) be lost. But but yeah, basically, I I would say like being being in sport, the networks are very tight uh, and very small. So so you number one, you need to network really hard. You have to network extremely well and, and uh, really try and, and put your feelers out there and talk to as many people as you can to try and figure out how you could get your foot in the door. Um, then you also need to be a, a good person because those those networks are extremely tight and extremely small, uh, your reputation can easily you know be kind of uh, you know kind of ruin things for you as you move through your career so it's really important to be a good person. Um, and, and really try and, and be honorable to both the players, but to, to your management, to your staff, uh, to, to everyone who you kind of work with. Always try and, you know, be, be a genuinely good person. You know, don't be, I think was it, the All Blacks have a saying, like, you know, just don't be an arsehole. Um, and, and that's basically kind of, sport kind of works that way. And especially in rugby, it's such a small community here in the U.S. that you, everyone knows everyone. So you, you better be a, a decent guy. Um, And then other than that, it's just working your butt off, man. Like once you get, once you do get that lucky opportunity, and if you are really trying and and putting your feelers out there and networking and stuff, you will get a chance somewhere. Um, And then when that chance comes, you have to really take it with both hands and just work your butt off and figure out ways to make yourself useful to whatever organization you're in, and whatever capacity you're in, you know, and sometimes that's going to mean doing more than you probably feel comfortable with. Um, And Obviously, that can lead lead to its own issues, like like I kind of had when I was just working all those roles. But uh, if you prove your value, in an organisation most of the time will see it. If if they have a good staff and good management, um, they they will honestly they'll see everything. Even at the lower levels, they'll see that. I promise you, they'll see it. And don't be downtrodden, even if you're, let's say, the kit man at a club or the kit man, you know, at a team or in the boot room or whatever it is. Um, if you do a good job, you're a good person. You will be recognised, and you will have opportunities to move up. You just it's really important you find organizations that have good values and have good management uh, in place. Because if you, uh, if you work for a place with bad management, um, it's going to be very toxic and it's going to be very hard to move up or to show your value. And, uh, and that becomes horrible. If you get stuck kind of in a, just in a rut, uh, that's also very difficult. So, I mean, that's probably the advice I would give, you know, work really hard when you get the opportunity network as much as possible and just generally be a good person and, and things should hopefully come your way with that, you know, and then, from there, it's just up to your, your own talent, your own work ethic to see how far uh, your career in sport will take you. You know, sport's amazing and it'll take you around the world and you'll meet fantastic people. So um, sport is, is wonderful uh, as long as you keep it balanced. Don't, don't let it become your everything. Keep it balanced uh, and keep your family close too. And th- that's probably the best advice I'd give with, with that. Awesome.
0: Awesome, and that's also what I love about that advice that you gave is, it's definitely transferable over into other aspects of people's lives as well. I can you can apply those principles in business as well, um, especially with networking, being a good person, um, and you know grit. I think I was listening to a podcast the other day. Um, it was Scott Galloway, American entrepreneur. He's moved to the UK now, and he was just saying, uh, at about 110 IQ, that's kind of where. Success is no longer correlated with IQ. Above that, there's no correlation. Uh, the 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 smart people, the people who make uh, really really significant business deals and money in business, are yes, they're smart, but they have grit, they have hard work. Mm-hmm. So what you also mentioned that you know um, keep working hard. And the last thing I want to ask you um, to wrap up is, you said you're no longer working in in sports. Maybe just to hundred percent clarify why you left sport, and then also what what did you take away from sport that you still think is is useful to you, even uh, like uh, completely in a different industry? Um, Have you taken things away and applied them, or are they completely separate realms? I know I'm obviously it's a bit of a leading question, but um, uh, (laughs) it's just interesting because some of the guests I've had on have really struggled to transition back into the into the working world after a career in sports
1: sure um so so for me obviously going going through what we went through uh, in that professional organization when things went so bad uh took a big toll on me on my relationship with my wife um and y- it, you then basically get to a point obviously the whole staff got let go after that season and that's not a surprise that things weren't going well so the whole staff got let go um and basically they just yeah the whole everyone got to let go including backroom staff like everyone it was just a complete clean out of the organization except <laughs> except the CEO and the and the actual people who probably should have gone so that it was kind of a, a kind of a funny situation but anyway um and then after that it kind of was just well what do you want to do do you want to work in do you want to carry on working in pro sports is this something you love um or do you want to try try something else and i'll tell you now and this people might eventually relate to this but When you allow your passion to become your work and it kind of takes over your whole life, which it did for me, rugby was when I woke up to when I went to sleep uh, at night, rugby was my life. When I watched a game, it wasn't to enjoy a game. I watched a game because I was doing analysis. Um, And unfortunately, it kind of ruins it for you, right? It's no longer a fun thing anymore. It's no longer really enjoyable because you're working so many roles. You're working so many hours. You're stressed. Um, it doesn't It doesn't give you that same satisfaction that it should. Obviously, winning can change that. Uh, so I don't want to take that away. Winning can also change that feeling. But um, I got to a point where I just decided I, I didn't like what it did to my relationship with my wife. And I didn't want to get into a situation again where I let sport do that to me. And I wanted to enjoy my sport. So I haven't completely walked away. I'm still coaching at the Huns. I, I love it. And I don't think I'll ever give that up. I'm still coaching at the Huns um I'm on the board of directors there uh so for me you know I'll never walk away from sport I love sport too much so I'll always be involved in some capacity and and now I get to give back um to a club you know I don't I'm not expecting payments or anything back I just do it because I love it and uh to be honest this is this gives me a, a better sense of accomplishment and joy uh than when I was working kind of in MLR and that's it's people might find that funny to hear but it's just I get to enjoy rugby again. You know, I get to fall in love with rugby again and enjoy it for, for what it really is. And it's just a sport, you know, it's not a job anymore. Um, so that's why I kind of moved away from it and obviously moved okay. towards technology where I could kind of leverage my skill sets. Uh, obviously with coaching, you work with different personalities, like uh, you have to manage expectations of the owners, expectations of players, how you manage that and how you speak to them is always different. It's not the same. Um, so, kind of trying to leverage that skill set into a different uh, type of work, which obviously with UX or user experience, um, it's a very human-centered approach to technology. So, because of that, I felt like I could leverage my skills there, and, and that's what I kind of transferred over. Um, and yeah, it's the same thing. You know, in technology, a lot of people aren't that personable. You know, they they really do struggle to communicate with people. They struggle; they're very easily intimidated um, by, let's say, big stakeholders at companies that they have to speak to where, you know, when you kind of come from coaching, you get a very thick skin. of Because, I mean, you're constantly by either the fans or the owners, you're being criticized, right? So criticism becomes very comfortable to you. So because of that, you know, you're not scared to kind of generally talk to people or or put yourself out there. You know, you'll take the hits and whatever comes, you'll try and learn from it. Um, So I try to transfer that also over. And I think it's, I don't know if it's just self-reflection or if it's hard to explain why some people can, convert or move from sports to their normal life i i can't i can't tell you what that what that is or why some people can do it easier than than others um or maybe they just felt like their time wasn't done in sports you know that's also something i mean i knew my time i was just like i didn't want to do sports anymore i wanted to do something else where i could enjoy the sport just for what it is you know um so i can't tell you why some people could like find it really easy to move over or find that transition so hard. But for me I've I found it really easy. I've enjoyed my time kind of obviously working in technology and being able to talk to people and, and just try and learn a whole new skill set, right? That's also part of the challenge is like just humbling yourself and learning a whole new skill set. So um yeah, I mean it's just it's a very weird it's a very weird situation, I guess mine mine was. I was put into a point where I had to kind of self-reflect and, and understand what I wanted out of my life moving forward. And you know, do I want a family? Do I want to constantly be moving around? I mean, in coaching, you'll be moving around all the time, right? You'll, you'll be hired and fired nonstop, you know? So you'll always be moving around the world to different teams and, and doing different things. And I didn't want that for my family either. I really wanted to settle down and kind of have my first child with my wife and, and feel settled wherever we were and not feel the stress inside of, of this pro sport thing, you know? Um, Okay. So that that really helped, kind of push me towards normal life, probably, and made it a a lot easier transition. And not being in public, you know, obviously with athletes, some of them, for coaches, it's kind of nice. You you don't get you don't have that same kind of limelight that players do, right? Or that kind of uh, adoration that players get from people. And I think that's also something that players probably struggle with: is when they have to kind of hang up the boots, that they no longer are that star or that player that they yeah. once were, and and coming to terms with that you know, as a coach, you don't have to do that. And and I do feel for players because that's, it, it is a very difficult thing to come to terms with even for a coach it's stuff, but for a player, it'll be 10 times worse. So yeah. I have a lot of sympathy for them uh, going through that. And, you know, I hope they, that they have spouses and, and people that are around them, family and friends that can really support them and help them through that. And not, you know, and not kind of make them feel guilty about the fact that they're struggling. Because I think a lot of people will be like, well, you know, you were playing pro sports. You should be really happy that you even had the years you had, you know? And, yeah. I think I think uh, it's very easy to kind of look down on on down on them or or be negative towards people who who come out of pro sports. And I think people need to give a bit more sympathy towards them because it isn't easy. It is difficult. Yeah. You know, you're losing a bit of yourself when you kind of hang up the boots yeah. or whatever it is, whatever sport it is.
0: I think um, from my personal perspective, um, I might be wrong on this, but for the from the conversations I've had with players or sports people, it seems the biggest issue is that issue that you kind of mentioned at the end there. It's that a part of the identity is wrapped into the sport and now you're essentially destroying that part of you or that part of you is no longer relevant and you have to detach yourself from that identity and start creating and crafting a new identity. So it seems like what you did before leaving the sport is you kind of had a, a vision and a direction of where you wanted to go. You had other things outside of sport that you identified with. You wanted to be a dad. You wanted to be a person who is going to settle down and start a family. You know, like you have other visions for where your life is headed. Whereas I think a lot of people in sport, especially if your career ends and you didn't have, uh, you didn't plan for it. For example, you get an injury and that's the end of your career. You didn't set up the next step. I think that's where a lot of professionals struggle is that they don't know that next journey for themselves. they don't know where the, their next challenge is coming from and to like detach yourself from that as you're saying towards the end there I think that is the big one it's,
1: huge. it's very it's very it's very difficult to and and what I would say to anyone is never let your sport or whatever it is become who you are. and it's the same with politics or anything else like you should never let anything become who like as a part of your personality like keep all of that separate. Um, and just be the person who you are and, and find value in, you know, the time you spend with your family and with your friends and everything like that, make that circle very, keep them close to you, you know, and don't worry about what like your fans are saying or things like that and try and keep that noise out as much as possible. Because if you allow yourself, for instance, to become like Cristiano Ronaldo, the soccer idol, right. The best example you could possibly give, but he, you know, that type of situation, he, like his whole identity is wrapped up in that you know, and, and that's for him, it'll be a very challenging thing the day that he does hang up those boots and he has to realize that, you know, he's just not, he's not that guy anymore, you know, and it's, then it really does become what are your connections like with your family and, and how tight are those connections? Can you, are you going to feel comfortable when you just hang up? And some people deal with it well, like we said, because they, they just enjoyed it and they played the sport because it was their passion. Um, but if you allow it to become you, uh, you're going to be, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a very hard, hard thing for you to eventually move out. And luckily I kind of, was always kind of looking at, at myself and where I saw myself in three, four, five years. Um, and obviously I wasn't expecting to be fired. Um, it, it, you know, it happened. And I basically spent a year just trying to figure out, well, what is the next step? You know, and I ended up going to do carpentry. We have some guys at the rugby club that have a wood shop and I just ended up going to do carpentry for, for a year just so I could use my hands, not use my brain and just try and figure it out. Like, what is the next step? You know, and just, I think even just having time away to yourself just to think is so important too. And don't like, I think players as well, if you need to take time to figure yourself out, do it. You know, don't, don't, don't be ashamed of it. Don't feel sad for it. Um, if you tell your family they'll, they should support you in it, but you know, take the time, figure out what you want ideally. And, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to do that. And, I, and I'm very happy. You know, I'm, I'm probably the happiest I've been, even though like, I'm not in the perfect situation. Um, I, as everyone has struggles in in small things, uh, I'm really happy and content in my life and where in the direction my life is heading in. You know, and and uh, I just hope that every player can can feel that too, and not let sport become the only thing that defines how they feel at the end of the day. You know, if you lose and, and that ruins your your day or your life, that's it's not worth it, man. It's just it's just not worth it. You know.
0: Epic. Thanks, man. Um, I think that's really really great insight and super chuffed for you that you are starting a new chapter in your life and i think it's a great positive um ending point for our for our chat and just a huge huge thank you for giving up your time Um just for those who don't know this uh, cj's as you said is in america i'm in south korea so the time difference has been a bit wild <laughs> yeah it's a bit thank crazy. you so much for for finding some time in your no you're welcome to,
1: to no we're so great no we're so great thanks no thanks stace i really appreciate it it was great it was great to talk it's always nice to you know, to talk and reflect, um, yeah. on things. I, I mean, I could talk for hours more, uh, about different reflections and different things, but, um, yeah, sports, sports, wonderful. And, and if you have an opportunity to work in pro sports, even for a short time, do it and enjoy it. And, um, yeah, you'll, you'll love the people, uh, that you meet and you'll also love the places you get to see. So uh, yeah, it's an amazing thing. Pro sports is an amazing
0: thing. Awesome. To those of you who made it all the way to the end, I sincerely appreciate your support. I hope that you have a better understanding of what it takes to create a winning team formula. My understanding is that this process is complex. It involves having owners committed to being financially invested in the vision of the club, an effective coaching staff, competent recruitment, and getting everyone on board with the vision of the club. And I think that last part is possibly the most difficult. A good step in the right direction is matching the right players with the coaching profile of the club. Getting all these things to come together consistently across time is incredibly tough and highlights how impressive teams like the Patriots and the All Blacks are. If you haven't already, please join me on Facebook. I'm growing a community there where I'll engage with you and answer any queries. I'm also looking for suggestions for future guests, and you can leave your recommendations there. I've added a link in the show notes. Have a good week, and until next time, keep well.